look into God's word, our friend and brother John Hill um, passed away this last week. Um, John is a, a really, he's been a dear part of our church for over 15 years. Uh, Mark Burley was able to bring him to the hospital um, and he died there from heart failure this week. Um, and John, he really, he was a special soul. Um, we met him, the leadership of our church met him around 2006 at Stand Down for Homeless Veterans. This is a, an, annual, an annual outreach for homeless veterans that provides services and, um, and care for homeless veterans in San Diego. Um, I was talking with Jackie Vance, who was there uh, in 2006 at Stand Down, and she said that the Harbor Volunteers were gathered in this one place and they were getting sort of or, like oriented into, the, into what they were going to be doing. And all of a sudden, they heard someone say, hey, there's my church people, there's my church people. And they turned around and it was, it was John. And that was, like, he'd already been coming to our church. This is back when we were at the theater, but... Um, uh, but that was when our leadership met John, and uh, he was really proud to call us his church family. And um, I remember years of conversations and interactions with John. Um, he was always honest about his struggles, and he had a very childlike faith that was full of love for people and a love for especially the music of our church. Um, and I'm encouraged because so many people in our church knew John, loved John, and were loved by John. Um, so we are sad to lose him, but grateful that he's with Jesus. Grateful that he's with Jesus. And um, when we know that they're, they're looking at putting together a service for him, and when we know the deeper John, we'll make sure that you know. Um, and, uh, but you can honor John as someone who spent a lot of time on the streets. You can honor John by getting involved with Stand Down um, this year. Uh, it's it coming in the summertime. Details will come. Um, also, Jesus Cares is our weekly ministry to homeless folks. We give them food and encouragement and prayer every Friday in the late afternoon, early evening. It starts right across the homelessness seminar that's coming up in May. Uh, those are all ways that uh, you can honor John and his legacy and his, his partnership in our church. Um, and so, yeah, so, um, so let, me, let me pray uh, for that. Um, pray with me. Uh, Father, thank you for John. Um, our hearts are sad that he's not with us. Um, in so many ways, he was just a, a constant reminder of your grace and your love, the importance of relationships and belonging. And so we pray that you would use, continue to use his life um, as a testimony of who you are so that we can celebrate what we saw in him and also be with us as we mourn his passing. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we need, to, we need to turn the corner because we're starting a series about joy. <laughs> um, and uh, and sometimes joy comes in the midst of sorrow. 
like for Christians, if you begin to follow Jesus, this joy begins to characterize your life. And at first, the joy sort of cancels everything else out. Um, but then the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you recognize that, wait, uh, joy and sorrow are not, um, they're not enemies, actually. Like, they're actually companions in life. And so we're beginning a series today called Invincible Joy. Invincible Joy. Uh, the entire New Testament is written because people were filled with joy. Uh, they wanted to announce the good news of Easter. They wanted to proclaim to everyone why everything is different because Jesus passed through death and then came out the other side. Because Jesus entered into the grave and then emerged to live forever through his resurrection. They recognized as they began to understand what the resurrection meant that Jesus bridged the gap between heaven and earth Jesus brought this life together with the life to come. And so Jesus' resurrection is proof that we don't only live once. It's proof that there is life beyond this life. It's proof that Jesus was victorious. Um, the resurrection is, we said this last week at Easter, the resurrection is Jesus' scoreboard. It's his victory and the different parts of the New Testament, um, they show how the resurrection of Jesus impacts our lives. And so we're going to study one of these letters this summer. Um, it's the letter that we call Philippians. And this letter says that the resurrection of Jesus produces invincible joy. That's one of the main themes of the entire letter is that the resurrection of Jesus produces invincible joy. Because when we commit to following Jesus, when you confess your sins and ask God to forgive you, and you commit to following Jesus as the Lord of your life, as God in the flesh, we get to share his victory. We get to share his victory. It's like a sports team's victory gives joy to their fans. Like when your team wins, you get happy. And it's kind of crazy because no matter what's going on in your life, Somehow, in some way, your team's success does something to you. It, it brings you some sense of happiness. And in the same way, we have joy when we follow Jesus because Jesus shares his victory with us. And so Eugene Peterson is the author of the Message Translation of the Bible. And one of the greatest things about the Message Translation of the Bible are the introductions to all of the books if all you ever did was read the introductions to each of the books in the message translation, it would, I mean, it would, it, it's just glorious. And uh, in, in his introduction to the uh, letter to the Philippians, Eugene Peterson said this. He said, this is Paul's happiest letter, and the happiness is infectious. Before we've read a dozen lines, we begin to feel the joy ourselves, the dance of words and the exclamations of delight have a way of getting inside us. And so we're going to be looking at this letter. We're going to go verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph through the weeks of the summer, and we're going to come into contact with this infectious happiness. Um, the joy that we experience from the resurrection of Jesus is invincible 
because it's not based on our performance, but it's based on Jesus' performance. Our joy isn't based on how good a week you've had. Our, our joy is not based on how well you are growing or on what progress you're making in your spiritual life. Our joy is based on Jesus' resurrection. And so we win no matter what. Whatever happens in our lives, Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, in another book written by Matthew Elliott, it's a book called Faithful Feelings, which is, to me, I think one of the, it's one of my most stimulating books on emotions and feelings. Um, it sa- he says this about joy. He said, joy is not confidence. It is emotion. It is a bounce in our step and a smile. As we grow to understand the worldview of the gospel, we will increase our joy. Okay? So that's not on your slide. That's the introduction to the quote that's now on the slide. Um, He says this, the reason that Christian joy is possible in any circumstance is not because it is present however we feel, but because it is based on unchangeable facts. The unchangeable facts that Jesus was God in the flesh, that Jesus died for our sins, and that Jesus rose from the grave and is living forever and that he shares his victory with us if we believe in him. Those are the unchangeable facts that give us joy in every circumstance, a joy that is invincible. And so this victory gives us joy even in the midst of the bad things in life, even in the midst of brokenness, trauma, family issues, sin, our bad commitments, when you think about the Emotionally Healthy uh, Spirituality series, all of those things that characterize our lives. Death, tragedy, shootings, like the problems in our world, like this joy is invincible and it's not inconsistent with these things. Very often we feel both joy and sorrow at the same time. At our Good Friday service, we sang, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, which is a a wonderful hymn. It's a wonderful hymn. It's been sung for generations. And one of the lines that struck me as we sang it was, it says this, is that sorrow and love flow mingled down from the cross of Jesus. That when we contemplate the cross of Jesus, sorrow and love flow and they're mingled together. Sometimes we experience both this invincible joy and sorrow at the same time. Often we experience this at the same time. And so joy's invincibility doesn't mean that we aren't honest about pain. There's a problem in the church, okay? There are, there's a problem with some Christians, and usually these Christians, they're, they're trying to do it right, okay? They're trying to, like, take what they've been taught and live it out. But there's a problem because some Christians, they feel like, wait, if I have joy, I have to be happy all the time, right? Like, bad stuff's going on, but that's okay because Jesus rose from the dead. Like, it's cool. Like, I'm good. Everything's fine. Jesus is on the throne. God's in control. And, And they don't let themselves feel pain. 
They don't let themselves feel sorrow. They are not, it's like they're not able to pick up and hold on to the brokenness that they experience and the pain of others. To some degree when they sort of go into joy mode or like false joy mode, it's hard. Maybe it's it's not always false joy. Like I'm really trying to be sensitive here, but I want to point this out because I want to free us all up so that we can hold both of these things at the same time. When they do it to themselves, sometimes it just kind of feels a little bit weird. And you're like, well, that's interesting. Okay, like, are you real? Are you not? What's worse, though, is when these people try to do it to you when you're suffering. They mean well because they want you. I think what's happening is that they're kind of afraid that if you can't be joyful and happy right now because of Jesus, then maybe you don't understand what Jesus has done. Which is, I mean, that's a good hope, but it's, I don't think it's where God wants us. I think that with the gospel, with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, sorrow and love flow mingled together. They're mingled together. And so joy's invincibility doesn't mean that we aren't honest about pain, but it means that we always have this abiding joy in the midst of everything else going on in our lives. And so it's in this way that our joy is invincible. Okay? There's a passage in, I I think it's in 1 Corinthians. It says that we mourn, but not as those who have no hope. Okay? So yes, we mourn. We are broken. Jesus was broken. I mean, in the resurrection, like in John 11, right? Jesus goes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, knowing he's going to raise him from the dead. And yet when Jesus sees the tomb, when he sees the friends and the family and the people that he loved around the tomb suffering and being sorrowful, Jesus is moved to weeping. Like right before he raises him from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus gives us joy, but it also is not, um, it, it goes with, it's mingled together with real sorrow and pain. And so we have to be honest about how hard things can be. We have to be honest about how upset we can become. We have to be honest about our feelings no matter what they are. But the more we understand the gospel, the more we understand the resurrection of Jesus, the deeper the gospel sinks into our hearts, into our minds, the more that the work of Jesus becomes the center of who we are. Jesus died for our sins so that we are forgiven and accepted by God no matter what. Jesus' resurrection will lead us to be resurrected in the future no matter what. And Jesus is now with us by his Holy Spirit, no matter what. And so this is why the resurrection gives us invincible joy. And we have the Bible. We have the Bible so that we would understand what Jesus did and so that we would see how the followers of Jesus, the people who saw Jesus raised from the dead and alive, passing through death into eternal life, we can see how they were changed by the resurrection. And so this is why we're reading through and going to look at the invincible joy that comes from the letter to the Philippians. 
And so let's start by just reading the first couple verses. Um, we're going to look at the first 11 verses today. Um, the first two verses are going to be on this next slide. Um, actually, the first verse is going to be on the next slide, and, uh, but they're also in your bulletin, and there's a place there to take notes. If you want to write something down, you can do that too. So Philippians 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So standard letter writing in the first century, you identify who you are. We put our name at the end of letters. Back then they put their name at the beginning so that you're reading this, you're like, what is this? Who is this from? And you're, oh, okay, I know who it is right at the beginning. Um, so this is the author and the recipients of the letter. From Paul and Timothy to the saints at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, those are the leaders of the church. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Paul. Okay, in order to understand the invincible joy that comes from this letter, you have to understand some of the historical background, some of the backstory that produced this letter. Okay, I want to tell you about the situation that Paul was in and give you a little bit of an overview. Um, and this is probably going to, take, this is going to take a few minutes. And it's cool to, what I'm hoping is that this is going to humanize this letter. It's going to help you connect to it. It's going to help you realize that the people who wrote the Bible, the people that received the Bible, were in real-life situations just like us. And when you see that their lives and situations were similar to yours and mine, then we can read these things and realize, man, they really do speak directly to our lives. And so Paul was one of the apostles. He was called by God to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus he was to proclaim Jesus' victory over sin and death, and he traveled throughout the Roman Empire in the first century proclaiming this. Now, this was good news as far as Paul was concerned, but this caused all kinds of problems. This message that Paul was preaching caused all kinds of problems with both the Jews of his day and with the Romans. The Jews hated Paul. Because if Jesus really rose from the dead and he was their Messiah, then the Jews of, G of Paul's day were wrong and they had to change and they didn't want to. The Romans hated Paul because Paul was announcing that the resurrection of Jesus meant that Jesus was Lord, which meant that Caesar wasn't. So the idea um, is that the leader of the Roman Empire, wasn't actually in charge, but Jesus was. And so Paul would preach, announcing Jesus and the resurrection. The Jews would get angry with Paul, and then they would go to the Roman authorities and complain. And then the Roman authorities would listen to what the Jews were saying. The Jews were like, look, hey, you got this guy out there. We're not really sure what he's all about. He claims to be a Jew, but he's not. And he's announcing that Jesus was this traitor, like this revolutionary leader who wants to overthrow Caesar and the whole Roman Empire. And so the Romans hear this, they're like, well, traitors, we know what to do with traitors. And so they arrested Paul and they threw him in prison. Now, Paul knew that he was going to have to appear before Caesar and explain why he was announcing that Jesus was king and Caesar wasn't. And Caesar didn't take well to rivals. Okay, and so this was, so Paul is in prison, and it's around the year 60 AD. Now, 
going to prison back then, in the same way that it is often now, it was humiliating. And it typically was discrediting if you were a leader. Right? Where there's smoke, there's probably fire. And so if you're in prison, you must have done something to put you there. Therefore, whatever movement you're leading, whatever you're in charge of, is probably a product in some way of some nefarious evil thing that you've done that's got you put into prison, right? You follow? And so this is a big deal because there were people who were using Paul's imprisonment to discredit him, to put him down, to try to take away his influence and get his followers to start following after them. And this was significantly damaging for Paul because the Christian movement was just beginning, And for the leader of the Christian movement in the world outside of Jerusalem to be in prison was like, oh, all right, pretty big reason not to take Jesus seriously. If the leader's in prison, you know, there's all kinds of religious stuff that goes on, lots of nefarious things. There's people that are in it for the money. Like, you know, okay, we'll just sort of put Christianity over to the side. And so this stigma was a huge concern for Paul. And then Paul had heard that some of the churches, including the church that was in Philippi, they were tempted to doubt. They were tempted to doubt in their own faith because of this and because of the difficulties associated with being part of the Jesus movement. There was a leader in Philippi. His name was Epaphroditus. And we meet him in chapter 2. Okay, you can read ahead if you want. But there was a leader named Epaphroditus, and the Philippian church had sent Epaphroditus to check on Paul. Okay, they sent him to to check things out. And Paul had heard that Epaphroditus was sent. Paul also heard that Epaphroditus had gotten really, really badly sick on his way to visit Paul. So bad that it was like he might have died. And Paul also heard that the Philippians knew that Epaphroditus got sick and he might not even make it to see Paul. And so Paul began, this this anxiety began to grow in Paul, okay? The great apostle who says, be anxious for nothing, and we're going to see him say that in chapter 4, he had this growing anxiety in his own heart about the church because, man, Paul's in jail, they send Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus gets sick, might not even make it to Paul, like, is God really in control? Would they think that God didn't care about them? Would they think that, man, maybe Paul's message about Jesus was wrong because they were suffering? Because Paul was in prison? Because Epaphroditus was suffering? I mean, because, 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 right? And so Paul's experiencing experiencing this anxiety over the future of the church in Philippi. And then Epaphroditus shows up. Epaphroditus makes it to Paul. He's okay. And Epaphroditus brought a gift from the church in Philippi. Epaphroditus comes and he's bringing money He's bringing money from the church to give to Paul to provide for his needs and to provide for his ministry while he's in prison and beyond. 
back then, if you were in prison, there was no chow line. Like, they didn't take good care of prisoners. I mean, now there's a sense of, I mean, it's, it's, it's not what it ought to be, but now there's a sense of dignity that's somewhat associated with folks that are incarcerated, and there are needs that are somewhat provided for them. It's often not enough, and there's other reasons why people need money when they're, and, and there's this whole thing. But back then, you almost had nothing. If you didn't have friends, if you didn't have support, if you didn't have money in prison, you had nothing. And so the church that, that Paul worried about like wasn't just okay, but they gave a gift that showed that they were partners in Paul's ministry. And so because of all of that, Paul says, man, I need to write this church a letter. Paul needs to write this church a letter. And so this is the letter that we have. Paul's in prison. He's, he's going to see Caesar at some point, and things may not go well for him with Caesar. He's worried about all the things that are going on in the world. He's worrying about the movement of Jesus and the resurrection announcement. He's worried about the church in Philippi, among other things. And then Epaphroditus. He's worried about Epaphroditus. He's worried about the church and what they think about Epaphroditus and is God in control. All these questions, right? Epaphroditus shows up, and it shows Paul that, man, when it comes to the church in Philippi, Everything is awesome. So Paul writes this letter, introduces himself, addresses them, and then in verse 2, verses 2 through 5, we see invincible joy begin. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always, in every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul is saying, man, my anxieties are alleviated. Grace and peace from God and Jesus. It's like Paul is saying, the resurrection is true and it brings us God's grace and peace, no matter what. Paul is saying here that, that Jesus and all that he's done is working out in our lives. Even in the midst of the worst circumstances, even in the face of our fears, we have grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy are people who are devoted to proclaim this for their entire lives. Like this is what their lives are about. The Christians in Philippi believed the gospel. They believed the message of Jesus and their actions are demonstrating um, fruit that's coming from that. And so because of this, Paul is overjoyed. I thank God every time I remember you. Do you have anybody like that in your life? any situations in your life where you've seen God work so powerfully that every time you remember that, you are filled with joy. And he says, it's because of your partnership in the gospel, verse five. Because of your partnership. Paul was so excited to see that the resurrection was working in their life. Okay, they aren't just attending the church. 
but they are so committed to the work of Jesus that they're willing to donate their money to Paul and the cause of the church to get this message out. That's what this means, this, this partnership uh, in verse 5, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so we don't talk a lot about money in our church. I mean, we do, um, you know, it from time to time, but this is what happens when you give to the work of the church, right? When you give and support the church financially, you become partners in the gospel. You become partners in everything that the church does. And so what that means is that every good thing about our church, you get credit for because you support it financially. And you, I mean, we also support it. I mean, partnership doesn't just, it's not just money, but it's our time and energy, right? It's our gifts and our talents. It's the love that we share with the church. But one of the ways that we express that love is through our financial support. And so this partnership gave God incredible joy. And what we see here, what we see here is the first of three points, um, that invincible joy grows when we focus on God's work in others. Invincible joy grows when we focus on God's work in others, because this is what Paul is doing here. In the midst of all of the things, I mean, he's in prison, right? He's about, he could be facing death for all he knows. He's got ideas about how it's all going to work out for him. But um, in the midst of his situation, Paul focuses on these saints in Philippi, these Christians, these people who are following Jesus. That's what saints are. They're special people. When you believe in Jesus, God calls you a saint. So this isn't like the super spiritual in Philippi. Anyone who is a Christian, to be a saint just means that you are chosen by God and one of his special children. That's what it means. And so Paul thinks about how God is working in them, and when he thinks about them, he is overjoyed. When Paul opens his eyes and sees God's work in their lives, it gives him invincible joy. And so he, this is offered to us that your invincible joy will grow when you focus on God's work in others. Because sometimes you don't see it inside, right? Sometimes you don't see it in your life. Um, and so when you can't see it in your life and you begin to doubt and the resurrection doesn't feel very true when you think about the specifics of your life, look at someone else. See what God is doing in the lives of others and let that fuel your joy. So invincible joy grows when we focus on God's work in others. Um, second, invincible joy grows when we focus on our identity in Christ. When we focus on the new reality of who we are because we're connected to Jesus. This is verses 6 through 8. Let's read these together. So Paul says, man, I'm overjoyed because of our partnership in the gospel Verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And so he's saying that, he's like, I am sure, like I'm an apostle of God and I am sure of this, that the God who began to work in you will never, ever stop working. That what you have begun to experience, you will continue to experience until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the, until the day that you see him face to face. That God began a work at creation when he created the heavens and the earth. And he continued that work until it was completed. In the same way, God's work of new creation, God's work of making a new humanity has begun and when you believe in Jesus, that work begins in you and that work will continue until the day that you are perfected in the presence of Jesus Christ. Salvation for us is building, it, it's a foretaste of God's new world. Um, and so, verse seven, he says, man, you are partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So he's saying, we're in this together. We both have experienced grace. The forgiveness, we've experienced forgiveness from God. We've been adopted into his family. This is now who we are. God is our father. Jesus is our savior. And when we focus on our identity in Christ, like our joy comes back because again, these are unchangeable facts. And so this joy is spurred on when you remind yourself of who you are and when you remind others of who they are. Sometimes in my experience, and it's important for us to be able to remind ourselves of these gospel truths, of the identity. It's important for us to learn how to preach the gospel to ourselves because there's times we get discouraged, there's times that we sin, there's times that we fail, and we need to remember that God still loves us. We need to remember that God forgives us. We need to remember that God is still at work in us. We need to remember that God is unbelievably patient with us. But sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard when you sort of like look in to remember the gospel for yourself. And so sometimes our most profound experiences of the gospel may come when you share these truths with others. And I can't tell you how often this happens for me where I'm talking to someone else who's struggling and I begin to share with them their identity in Christ. And there's this voice that goes on inside of me that says, hey Stephen, this is true about you too. Hey, Stephen, don't forget this. This is for you, too. Like, I'm speaking this through you, but this is, like, let this land. You know, make sure this is landing in you uh, as it's landing in them. So, invincible joy grows when we focus on our, our identity in Christ, our identity in Christ, Right? are like personal, your personal and others. When you focus on, hey, this is, it's our Father that we're taught to pray, right? Our Father in heaven. All right, then third, invincible joy grows when 
we pray for others. This is what Paul does in verses 9 through 11. This is the power of prayer. All kinds of things. You know, every, there's all kinds of ways to talk about prayer, all kinds of things that we, we realize about prayer. Um, but here's reality. So I'm not going to tell you, hey, you don't pray enough. I'm not going to say that today. What I am going to say is that prayer can join you back to God. Prayer can actually join other people that you care about back to God. Um, just one example, uh, this is something I've experienced recently in my own life, but there's a book called A Praying Life written by Paul Miller, and he talks about his relationship with his kids. And he says that, uh, he's talking about how parents want to correct and teach and instruct their kids, and he says, the greatest thing that I have ever done for my kids is to pray for them. He said, my prayers for them have been more powerful and more significant and more meaningful in the life of my kids than any of my instruction. And I read that, and I'm like, whatever. Like, that's this, I mean, if you're writing a book on prayer, that's the kind of thing you have to say, but that's not real. Like, seriously, come on. I mean, your kids desperately need you to train them, to teach them, to show them the gospel, to, to live the gospel before them, to, like, help them understand Jesus. Like, come on, you can't, I mean, the Bible says you can't believe if no one tells you the gospel, right? So this idea, I'm like, come on, like, this is so radically overstated. And then my kids get older, and they stop listening, you know? Like, they have their own ideas, and they got their own sense of things, and, you know, Sometimes I deserve the rolling of the eyes as I begin to speak because I talk too much sometimes. And, um, and, so, <laughs> and so in some capacities, I have stopped talking. In some respects, I have stopped and I've prayed. And, uh, and I've like let things go and I haven't brought things up. And I've decided to just pray and not to speak about things. And last week, um, yeah, last week something, I don't want to give you details, but last week one of my kids said something that was deeply meaningful and personal and, and there was a reconciliation moment that happened. And all I've been doing for the last like year and a half is praying, not speaking. And so prayer can join us and others that we love back to God. And this is why Paul does this in verses nine through 11. Let's look at these verses. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so Paul's joy led him into the presence of God. And Paul's joy-filled entrance into the presence of God, he, like, he couldn't keep from bringing the Philippians with him. 
You know, he's overjoyed. He's excited to him. This is like further proof that the resurrection of Jesus is true. This is further testimony that God is at work in their lives. His anxiety is lifted, and he goes rushing into the presence of God, and he can't go without them. So he's like, and I'm praying that your love would continue to grow. And I love that for Paul, love isn't just a feeling. Like it is a feeling, but it's more than that. It's with knowledge and all discernment so that they can approve what's excellent. Right? So it's, it's love which is mingled with truth. Right? It is truth-filled love. It is love according to what God has said. And so Paul is saying, I'm praying that your love would grow and that you would line up even more with who God is, what God is like, and what God is calling for all of us to live as. Like this is the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul's like, I'm praying you guys into the presence. I'm pushing you closer to God. I want you to spend more time with him. I want you to spend more time loving others with the love that he has loved you with. And so this encourages us to pray. And to pray maybe not just for us, but to pray for others. Like this is a great prayer for you this week. You can pray these words about, not the church in Philippi, but about people in your family, about people in your workplace, about people in your life group. Um, and so, man, with all of this, you see this joy, like this, this gift comes, Paul's heart is lifted, he is so thankful for the resurrection of Jesus and that it's working in the world. And so he looks and he sees the way that Jesus is alive and he's alive in others. And he reminds them and himself of, of their collective identity and then he prays for them. And so committing to Jesus, man, brings power. When you commit to Jesus and you join the church, you join this community of people that are following Jesus, like something happens to us. We all have something that's at the core of our being. There is something in us that is deeper than everything else, okay? There's something in us that when we act and react and talk and speak and whatever, emote in, in all these different ways, sometimes that comes from the core of our being, sometimes it doesn't, right? Sometimes we do things and we think, well, that's not who I am. And we say that because at the core of us is something else. And the question, the question for us is what is at the core of our being? Today, what is at the core of your being? The power of Jesus and committing to him is that it puts Jesus and the resurrection at the core of who you are. All of us are made in God's image. All of us are broken by sin, both sin that's done to us and sin that comes from us. And so we've got these competing principles that wrestle for being at the core of who we are. Are we God's image or are we broken and selfish people? What's at the core? Man, 
what the gospel tells us is that we can decide what's at the core of who we are. That committing to Jesus, believing the gospel, and believing the gospel is believing that Jesus rose from the dead, right? They're talking about that upstairs right now, right? The, the class on the resurrection, the evidence, right? If you need evidence, go upstairs next week and, and be a part of that. Um, but man, when you believe in Jesus and commit to following him, then Jesus becomes the core of who you are. That's where this new identity comes from. It puts the power of God and the love of God at the core of who you are, and that becomes sort of the home base, the base of operations through which your entire life flows from that. Because when you commit to Jesus, his victory becomes yours. Your future is guaranteed, and the future begins today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this letter. Thank you for the anxiety and the suffering and the brokenness and the fear that characterized Paul, that characterized the Philippians. Thank you for working your victory, your resurrection into all of their lives in a way that shows us what it was like for them so that we can experience that. Jesus, thank you for giving us a new identity. Thank you for joining us to a community of people so it's not just us on our own, but we're doing this together. Help us to encourage each other this week. And I pray, Jesus, that for anyone here who hasn't committed to you and made you the core and the central focus of who they are, that you would lead them, even right now, to confess their sins and to turn to believe in you. We pray this in your name, amen. We're gonna receive our offering next. Hey, this is a chance for you to become a partner with the church. We can, we're, we can express our partnership in the gifts that you give to the church. And whether you give in the baskets as they come or if you want to give online, you can do that. The instructions for doing that are on the screens. But whether you give now or you give online during the week, um, 